Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you are headed away from the radio for any reason, uh, you don't have to miss out on the conversation here on Detroit Today. You can always go to iTunes or wherever it is you download podcasts. You can download and subscribe to Detroit Today and listen to us whenever or wherever you like. Uh, A little later in the show, we're going to talk with a writer and professor, Gail Lukasik, whose book, White Like Her, documents her discovery that her mother had African-American heritage but was passing in society as white. I think we'll have a really interesting conversation about race, racism, uh, and inequality with Gail Lukasik. So you'll want to stay tuned to that. Uh, it'll start at about half past the hour. But first, we want to reintroduce a little segment that we used to have on Detroit Today called Throwback Thursday. We you really loved the idea of that. It's a hashtag that people use a lot on social media to accompany old photos uh, of the people posting them. But this week, we are reworking that concept to talk about issues, those stories that used to dominate the news media around here, but that we don't really hear as much about anymore or talk about much anymore. Today, we want to kick off this series of conversations talking about urban farming. Several years ago, we talked a lot locally and nationally about the repurposing of the vast swaths of vacant land here in Detroit. Our city was and is in a really unique position to rethink how land gets used. There just isn't the density here that there is in most American cities or that used to be here in Detroit. And a lot of people saw that as an opportunity to answer the question of vacant land with an answer to another problem, food insecurity. Detroit has struggled for a lot of years to supply good and healthy grocery store options throughout the city. Affordability and transportation have also fed into the problem of food access here. With all of those things considered, urban farmers came into focus in Detroit. So who is the person that we would talk to about that thing? Well, there was one name that came to mind immediately, uh, Malik Yakini, who is the executive director at the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and is and its D-Town Farm Initiative. He's an advocate for African-centric education and farming, and I call him the godfather of urban farming here in the city of Detroit. And he's grimacing as I say that, but I am absolutely serious that there's there's not too many other names. I won't say it's the only name, but he is the first name that comes to my mind when I think of this whole idea of rethinking the way we use land, rethinking the way we make sure that people have access to the food that we need. Uh, so Malik Yakini, welcome. To Thank Detroit you, today. Stephen. It's a, a pleasure to be back. I, of course, I want to push back against <laughs> you characterizing I knew you would. the <laughs> godfather of urban farming in Detroit uh, because there are many, many people doing good work and there were many people doing this work before me. So I, I see myself as a contributor to yeah. to a, a chain, but I, I certainly don't see myself <laughs> as the godfather. Well, I didn't say you invented it. I just said you're sort of the guy. And what I, what I mean by that is I, I really feel like you took the conversation about urban farming in the city to a, a, a different space and maybe a, maybe a more important space uh, than, than it was before. And I, I really think the convergence of discussion around vacant land and food insecurity sort of that converges around you and what you guys are doing at, at your initiative. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I'm part of an organization, the Detroit right. Black Community Food Security Network. So 
I, I always, uh, as you said, grimace when <laughs> the focus gets placed on me as an individual because this is certainly a collective work. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think our organization has contributed to the public discourse on urban farming, both in the city of Detroit and throughout the United States, mm-hmm. particularly by raising the issues of racial justice and and how that plays into creating a fair and just and equitable food system. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to the beginning when you and the people you work with started talking about this, started thinking about this. Uh, what was going on in the city at that well, point? Well, so first of all, the work of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network really grows out of some earlier work at Insortima Institute, which was an African-centered school that I directed for many years. Mm-hmm. And so we thought it was important at the school that the children learn how to grow food but also learn about the cultural, economic, and social factors that kind of surround creating a food system. And so that was very much a part of the curriculum and the practice at that school. Uh, We needed a larger container to hold the work, so in 2006, we created the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. So, of course, there were several factors. There was the endemic poverty that existed then and continues to exist in the city of Detroit, and, you know, you, you talk about that frequently on your mm-hmm. show. I think 40 percent of Detroiters are living below the federal poverty line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was the uh, lack of abundant access to full service grocery stores. Uh, at that time in 2006, there was still one national chain, Farmer Jack, which was in the city, which uh, subsequently closed all of its stores the following year in 2007. Right. And so we had a serious problem with lack of access to fresh and healthy produce. And then there was the problem or the opportunity, depending on how you look at it, of the tremendous amount of vacant land in the city of Detroit. So all of those factors kind of converged uh, to to spur us to create the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and to advance this discussion on the potential of urban agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you started out, talk about those early days. What what was what what did this look like uh, when you decided, okay? we can address some of these issues through urban farming. Well, frankly, in 2006, um, most of the organizations leading this work in the city of Detroit were white-led nonprofit organizations. And while we believe that they were well-meaning, our organization pushes back uh, pretty strongly against the idea of white groups coming into predominantly African-American communities and leading the work. We are uh, certainly all for allies and for, for people who are supportive but we think in a community, in fact, really in all communities, we think that the, the people who live there should, should create the vision for what their future should be and should be the primary implementers of that vision. And, though, and others who want to be helpful should follow the leadership, the kind of indigenous leadership of the people who live in those communities. Yeah. And so that's not really what we saw happening in 2006. And we wanted to create a vehicle for Detroit's majority African-American population both to participate in the food movement in a robust way, but also because we're in the vast majority of the population in the city to be in the leadership of that movement. Yeah. You know, I, I want to stop and talk about that concept right there for a little bit because there are some people who think that's a sort of controversial concept, right? Uh, yeah, this idea yeah, yeah. that. I've, I've that, been called racist for, for <laughs> that's saying That's right. That. I'm sure you have. Uh, and we can have a whole conversation about that word and, and how people use it and how people don't understand what it means. But, sure. but, but I, I do want to talk about this idea of, uh, this idea of outsiders coming in and, and leading things and the, sort of address that issue from, I think, uh, you know, I have that argument, too, with people all the time. And I say, listen, what if I moved 
to Birmingham uh, and start, started de- deciding things about how that community ought to look, how that community ought to feel, or how that community ought to deal with, with uh, various issues. People would call me all kinds of names. No one thinks of that, or, or I should say the majority population, doesn't seem to think of it that way when they think of Detroit. And some of that is about capital, I think, uh, the idea that people in the city lack the kind of capital that you would have in, in, in other communities. But some of it is just about, it's just about race. I mean, it really is about not believing that agency is one of the things that African-Americans ought to, ought to benefit from. Yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely correct. So uh, two things. One, it's the analysis of our organization that there is still uh, a dominant theme, both in the United States and through the world, that sometimes we call the system of white supremacy, that uh, people who are defined as white have uh, unearned privilege and are usually more well-connected uh, both with people and with capital. And then uh, this system of white supremacy intersects with the economic system, capitalism, which has a logic of its own. And so uh, we are not, and I I don't think any reasonable person in the city of Detroit is for putting up a wall around the city and saying, well, no new people get in. Yeah, Yeah. because I mean, certainly, you know, all communities, there's, you know, there's some porosity. There's, there's people moving in, people moving out, ideas which are exchanged. There's cultural ideas that, and this has happened, you know, throughout the history of human beings. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But what's wrong is that when people who are defined as white by the society move into black communities or other people, other people of uh, color communities and move in with an inordinate amount of power mm-hmm. and access to capital, then they're able to define what happens in those communities. And that's really where the, where the problem lies. And so we think that the, the, the rights of every community to determine their own destiny needs to be respected. And, you know, that doesn't need to look like, you know, an antagonistic (laughs) relationship of people of different ethnicities. It's just really a question of basic respect and how you uh, be of assistance if you want to help, if you want to, you know, if you want to help folks. The other thing is that there's a savior narrative that often plays out within uh, this system of white supremacy that suggests to white people that somehow it's their duty obligation to come into communities and save people. Mm-hmm. And it's our view that all of the elements which are necessary for uh, rethinking and re uh, kind of reestablishing vibrancy in our communities exist with inside of us. And so, uh, again, others who want to assist in that can come in and follow and support the leadership that already exists in those communities. Yeah. It's hard to do it that way. I mean, it's harder to do it that way, I think, uh, than than to sit back and let others sort of uh, take control. It's harder to have that conversation and say, "Hey, we're we're glad you're here. We're glad you want to help." But here's the framework yeah. uh, that 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 works the best for the people who are here. Well, you know, the reality also though is given the uh, example that you gave of perhaps moving to Birmingham and trying to define what's happening there. My, my uh, assumption would be that you probably wouldn't get too much support that other communities <laughs> don't think I would. <laughs> be, because other communities understand the, the kind of power and agency that they have. They typically don't let people come into their communities and dictate what happens. But uh, African-American people have certainly been severely damaged by living in a society that suggests to us that we are somehow of diminished value. And that uh, that self-concept, that, that damaged 
self-concept allows us to have other people come into our communities and take leadership where we should be leading ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Malik Yakini. He's the executive director at the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and its D-Town Farm Initiative. We have him here today to talk about urban farming as part of our re-inaugurated Throwback Thursday segments. We used to do Throwback Thursday with music uh, a few months ago. That didn't go over so well. Uh, so now we're bringing it back with the idea of talking about issues that we used to talk about quite a bit in the city and no longer discuss as, as frequently. Uh, urban farming, I think, falls very nicely into that category, uh, something that we haven't really checked in on lately in terms of how it's going, what effect it's having on the city and its challenges, and what is it doing for the people who live in the city? One of the things that uh, those who are engaged, I think, in that community have really thought about over a, a long period of time. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the W. DET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Judy in Detroit. Judy, you're up first on Detroit Today. Hi. Hey. Um, I've been involved in urban agriculture for some time. Um, hello, Malik. Hey, how are you? I'm fine. <laughs> Good. Um, and I think it has a great role to play in in the city in many ways. One is that it helps people to develop self-determination. You get that little plot of land, and you decide what's going in that plot, and you plant it, and you grow it, and you harvest it, and you share it. And so in the process, you learn skills, you gain healthful food, and you develop a real um, community, relationships of people with each other that are personal relationships, they're not bureaucratic. Yeah, yeah. And I think as far as race is concerned, um, it helps people to work across the so-called racial divide. Um, I don't believe in race myself. I think there's no scientific basis for it. It's a social construct. Mm -hmm. um, but people have, tr because it's a strong social construct, people have trouble sharing power across racial lines. Um, and one of the things that's great about local, uh, I'm sorry, I that's can't. Okay. I'm nervous. That's so okay. I can't think <laughs> Don't of be word. nervous. You're good. You're doing. You're doing great. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that emerges—that's the word—from community gardening is shared leadership. Oh, yeah. People who work together get to know each other, get to appreciate each other as persons. They don't. They come not to see race as a dividing factor. And I think that's terribly important in yeah. this city. Yeah. I can tell Judy. you that I belong to a community garden mm -hmm. that has um, Arabs, uh, Arab-speaking people, mm -hmm. uh, African-Americans, and so-called Euro-Americans, 
and we have worked together for several years, and there was some distrust, if not distrust, at least caution in some of those relationships in the beginning across racial lines. And those have disappeared. Yeah, it yeah. is a marvelous Judy, way. Judy, I really appreciate. Uh, I really appreciate the call and the comments there. Um, one thing that uh, that I think is really important about what Judy was saying there is this idea of getting people in communities to work together, but not just work together in the sense that, okay, we're all helping, but that we all have investment and buy-in in the outcome. Uh, and I, I mean, I think in a way it, it reignites in people the idea that they can control their own destinies. Yeah, yeah, she's absolutely correct that uh, gardening and urban farming can be a very powerful tool for kind of knitting back the social frat fabric that's become so frayed. And I, I see that many times we have both discussions that take place across ethnic groups, but we also have these discussions that take place across generations. At Mm -hmm. our farm, for example, D-Town Farm, we often have elders who were raised in the South who might be working right next to someone who's a a younger person who was born in Detroit. And you have these very rich discussions that take place. So there's many, many benefits uh, that go beyond the food, the poundage of of food, which is grown in these urban gardens. Yeah. Uh, Let's go to Peter. Peter in, in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit Today. Hey there, Stephen. Hey. And uh, hello to your guest, Malik. How are you? Uh, since this is uh, Throwback Thursday, I decided I, I, I should throw you far back. Uh, <laughs> back in 1893, mm-hmm. there was a financial panic in uh, the United States that was way worse than what happened in 1929. And uh, people were starving. And they were certainly starving here in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And Mayor Hazen Pingree, who's... Uh, uh, statue sits right at the front of uh, Grand Circus Park. Best place to watch the, uh, uh, parade is from Hayes and Pingree's lap when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> he started what was what people refer to as the, uh, Pingree potato patches. Yeah. And they gave plots of undeveloped land to people to allow them to plant food. People planted potatoes because p- potatoes are extraordinarily re- nutritious, at least the heirloom potatoes that people were growing then. Uh, and at that time, you know, the, the food insecurity was resulting in starvation. So Pingree was, was saving lives. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you flash forward to the 1970s, Coleman A. Young, the real Coleman Young, was uh, started the Farm-A-Lot program, right. which was about that. developing neighborhoods. Yeah, you may remember, you know, that, that we had just begin, begun to lose houses, mm-hmm. and there were these vacant lots. And what the city would do is if you, you signed up uh, with the rec department, I think it was, and you get, you get assigned a lot, and they would run a spigot to, uh, from the water so that you would be able to water your, your, your garden. Yeah. And they were used more, more as, as a beautification of something that, you know, there was a garden there instead of just a big vacant lot. And, and, uh, but people were growing their own food, greens and, and corn and what have you. Sure. Uh, that was something that was going on then. Even now, uh, with what's going on with, with uh, the, the local urban farming movement now, with a little support like that from the city, this thing could get huge. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We've got lots of land, and there, there's some people who want to plant trees. It's like trees, right. like soybeans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Peter, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Uh, Malik there, he's, he's showing that, uh, you know, this, this goes back so far in the city, and, and the idea that, uh, people can people can control for themselves. 
uh, how food is sort of available and distributed in the city is is not new, as you point out. But I do think it takes on a really different tenor today than it did, of course, a hundred some years ago. Yeah, but but thank you. I appreciate him bringing forward that history. And some people say because of Hayes and Pingree that Detroit is really where urban agriculture in the United States began. Um, and so we, we continue to build on that historical legacy. But I, I do want to just add one dimension to the conversation and say that most of us don't believe that urban farming is going to replace rural farming, that in many ways we're supplementing what right. rural farmers do. So mm-hmm. some people have this kind of very idealistic notion about urban farming, and we just want to kind of put it into its proper perspective that we still need to be supportive of rural farmers where the vast majority of our food comes from. And we need to think about how to create smart coalitions with urban and rural farmers so that we can be mutually supportive, both in terms of uh, sharing of knowledge and skills, but also in terms of looking at how we best serve uh, large urban markets like the city of Detroit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Imani and Romulus, welcome to Detroit today. Hey, good morning. How are hey. you guys doing today? Good morning, okay, how are you? How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Well, my question was for you, Bob Malik. Um, what ways can um, people that are under the age of 30 get more engaged with D-Town? Or is there some type of outreach that you guys have? Um, I, um, I know you have something for, like, the little kids to do, but that gap that's in between, you know, uh, being, like, a young adult, you know, to someone that's under the age of 30, I know that, you know, D-Town's involved a lot with uh, – getting people out there to the farm to go ahead and help and getting involved with the uh, you know, farmer's market and things like that. What yeah. other ways can, you know, that, that, that gap or that, um, that age range under the age of 30, you know, a uh, young adult can help to get involved with you guys? Well, I- interestingly, our board of directors is primarily people who are either under 30 or right around the age of 30. Oh. So uh, young people are very involved at every level in our organization. And we also realize that it's important if this movement is going to have intergenerational sustainability, that we consciously nurture the development of young people within this movement. But as you pointed out, uh, young people can get involved, or older people can get involved at D-Town Farm um, by volunteering at the farm and learning the various aspects of urban agriculture that we practice there. They can also get involved in the development of the Detroit People's Food Commons, which is a building we're building on the corner of Woodward and Euclid, the cornerstone of which will be the Detroit People's Food Co-op, a cooperatively owned grocery store. So we have lots and lots of work and energy around that project. And one of the things that's going to do is uh, source food as much as possible from local growers. So we expect this new cooperative grocery store to be a boost to the local urban agriculture movement. But there's many ways that people of all ages can get involved. They can, they can contact our office at 313-345-3663 for more information. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much for that call, uh, Monty, and uh, eliciting that information uh, for the listeners. Uh, let's go to let's go to John on the east side. John, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Sure. So I I, I want to gently uh, ask that Malik consider that some of us American Europeans have been here. <laughs> I've been here for fifty five years. Uh, I've been a community leader in Jeff Chalmers for 30 years, and I've experienced a lot of pushback, including people asking me what I'm doing here. Am I lost? Am I in the wrong neighborhood? And I love the city, and I've worked diligently. We tried to uh, get a community Detroit grocery store coalition going back in the 2000, mid-2000s, 
to actually replace the uh, Farmer Jack up here on Jefferson Avenue. And, uh, and then the is other that thing the, is, the is that the store that, that Moses and other folks were involved with creating? I'm sorry? Is that the store that folks from Moses were involved with? I believe so, uh, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, it didn't, it didn't work out, but I also experienced some pushback there. What, what was this Caucasian doing at the table? So, um, you know, one of the things we try to do here is mitigate the gentrification that we've seen coming since, you know, Victoria Park was brought in, and, mm-hmm. and they wanted to wholesale demolish the entire neighborhood and just, you know, put urban or uh, suburban type uh, subdivisions here. Sure. We've also, you know, the community gardens that we, you know, put together back in the 2000s, they were more about community building, like Judy, uh, you know, indicated, is bringing the people, get them out of the houses, know who your neighbors are, and all work together. And then, you know, eat some fresh food at the same time, which is one <laughs> of my uh, favorite things, huh? Yeah. You know. So that's. I just wanted to add. Yeah, that. no, I I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate your calling and of course listening to the show, uh, Malik. Do you do you have a response? I, I mean, I would not, say not much. Except, I mean, clearly we recognize that although Detroit is a majority African American city, it's not an all African American city, and there are people of various ethnicities who have the the right to live uh, prosperous lives as well. And we need to figure out how we build kind of community and equitable relationships with everybody who's here. You know, it's one of the one of the things is is that's sort of lurking behind this conversation is the level of comfort people have with who's in charge, right? The idea that maybe you aren't the person with your hands on the wheel directing things uh, in a community that you may not have as much invested in or uh, be as familiar with as somebody else. And I think that 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 ends up being a, a prickly conversation sometimes in this country that uh, that white people uh, are uncomfortable sometimes with the idea that maybe they they aren't in charge of what's going on and and they take it as an accusation or some sort of exclusion uh, by black people it's not that it, 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 you know uh, the idea that of self-determination is about Self, it is not about others. So right, right. it's hard to sometimes hard to get into that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and continue our conversation with Malik Yakini about urban farming. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. Arnold in East Detroit, Phyllis and Warren, Brett and Ypsilanti. We will get to you. News, music, culture, and community. Every day. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Malik Yakini. He's the executive director at the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and its D-Town Farm Initiative. We are talking about urban farming in the city of Detroit as part of our re-inaugurated segment on Throwback Thursdays. The idea now is to talk about issues that we used to talk an awful lot about that we don't hear as much discussion about right now. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag uh, Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's uh, let's go to back to the phones here. Arnold in East Detroit. 
Arnold, welcome. Yes, uh, good morning. Uh -huh. uh, there are many areas of uh, Detroit where uh, the local community is is empowered and uh, de redeveloped, and and uh, the area is, is booming and prospering. The mm -hmm. two areas that come to mind right off the top is the Arab American community and the Mexican community. Uh, they redevelop that whole uh, southwest side. The homes are over 100 years of age without any federal money and, and no city of Detroit money. And it was all done by the local people who live in those homes. Yeah. So we already have a very successful template of how to re redevelop neighborhoods in Detroit. Yeah. We just have to copy what the Mexicans and the uh, Arabs have done. Yeah, well, that's one way to look at it, Arnold. Uh, thanks very much for the call and the, and the comments. I mean, uh, there is something about... Uh, this this question of how we redevelop the city in the predominantly African American uh, areas that that gets to uh, and we were talking about this during the break the agency that people have and uh, sometimes it's really difficult to make those comparisons to other uh, cultural groups or ethnic groups because they just have not face the same kinds of circumstances. And, and yeah, it's wonderful that uh, Latinos have done what they've done in southwest Detroit, that the uh, Middle Eastern population that's here is is doing well in that part of the city as well. I'm not sure that you can just say, well, let's uh, let's copy that uh, for, for black people. Yeah, that was my thinking exactly. And certainly we should lift up those examples. And I'm sure there's many lessons we can glean from what they've done. But the major difference is that uh, people of African descent in the United States uh, underwent a process of enslavement and the almost total decimation of our traditional culture and language. And so these other ethnic groups haven't gone through that same process. They still have their family names that have probably carried on for hundreds of years. They still speak the language that their their uh, great-great-grandparents spoke. There's still many cultural retentions that they have, and so their kind of basic sense of identity, their basic sense of who they are, the, the, the fiber that makes them a human being that's able to walk on the earth and stand shoulder to shoulder with other human beings hasn't been destroyed. But that's not the case with African-American people. We've had uh, centuries of decimation of our, of our culture, including the kind of intentional uh, decimation which has occurred within public schools where uh, the teaching of, about the history and the cultural concepts that come out of the experience of people of African descent is almost totally absent. And so uh, we, we need to really kind of rebuild this fiber of what makes us human in order for us to function in the same ways that other ethnic groups are able to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go to Brett in Ypsilanti. Brett, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Uh -huh. And hi, Malik, welcome. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Um, so I wanted to talk about uh, soil contamination in urban gardens. Uh, it's kind of a throwback for me because um, a few years ago I worked on a study um, that looked at soil contamination um, and specifically the perception of risk um, from that in mm -hmm. urban gardens in mm -hmm. Detroit. Um, and through that, some of the, I guess, initial findings where people were a little bit less concerned with the contamination if they didn't own the plot um, and they weren't as willing to invest in remediation if they thought that the city would end the uh, lot leasing program in that neighborhood or things of that nature. Um, but in general about soil contamination, um, Malik, have you seen 
changes in that, or have you seen increased access to resources um, to get educated about the issue or to address it, um, to even do initial testing? Because mm. I know to do comprehensive testing, it's pretty expensive. Um, we only did it because we had a grant, um, but I'm not sure that that's feasible to test an entire lot in a comprehensive way huh. um, if you're a single family or even a community, like a neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if resources have improved for uh, soil contamination. I, I, Brett, that's a great, that's a really great question and, and topic to inject into the conversation here. I mean, Malik, uh, certainly go ahead and answer the question, but but also talk more generally about contamination. Uh, if you tear down a house that had lead or mercury or asbestos in it, uh, can you then just, you know, uh, plant a farm uh, on that land and not worry about <laughs> those contaminants? Uh, so, Brett, thank you very much for, for raising this issue. Um, so the first thing is that we would recommend that anyone uh, endeavoring to do agriculture in the city of Detroit have the soil tested as a first step. Um, so the Garden Resource Program run by, the, run by Keep Growing Detroit serves as an umbrella for many of the 1,600 gardeners and farmers in the city of Detroit. And by joining the Garden Resource Program, you can have your soil tested uh, for, for a, a relatively low fee. For example, I think it costs $10 for an individual family gardener to, to join the Garden Resource Program and then get their soil tested as a part of that. So that's a tremendous resource. And in many ways, I think the Garden Resource Program has become a national model and has really helped to, to spur and to breathe life into this urban ag movement in the city of Detroit. But a, a few years ago in a conversation with Ashley Atkinson, who was one of the co-directors over there, she told me that actually the perception of soil contamination in Detroit is larger than the reality and that only about 13% of the samples that they get back come back with unacceptable, unacceptable levels of heavy metals. But nonetheless, you should have your soil tested because there uh, were many places in Detroit where there were uh, in, industrial yeah. centers where perhaps there's uh, either chemicals that were used in the processing, uh, in processing or there were heavy metals that still remain in the soil. There's areas where there were gas stations where leaded gas leached into the soil, there's areas where uh, houses were knocked down, as you mentioned, that had lead paint, and that lead has leached into the soil. And so we want to be safe. That's one of the most important aspects of food, food safety. And so we would highly recommend that people have their soil tested. And there seems to be a fairly easy way to get that done through the Garden Resource Program. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Before I let you go, we should talk about your band, Mollywop, and an upcoming performance, right? December yes, 30th. yes, yes. So I lead a band <laughs> uh, called Molly Wop that plays funk, uh, rock, soul, hip hop, reggae. We're kind of a genre defined yeah, no, band, I, actually. I, I love that that mix that you guys have going there. We have had you here. Yes, on the yes, show. we played here. In fact, a year ago, <laughs> last November, yep. uh, and then just this past week, Amanda Claire played the tape of our live performance last year on on Culture Shift. So we've been creating quite a buzz around the city. Uh, we played uh, this past weekend at Northern Lights Lounge, and we play at the Marble Bar frequently. We have a show coming up on December 30th at Northwest Activity Center, which is called the New Year's Revolution. Ah. And uh, we want to encourage people to come <laughs> out to that. Yeah. Uh, so we're, uh, we're, we're combining several elements of black music. Our, our vocal leader, the leader of our vocal section, Ayo Daly Bakari, used to sing with the Dramatics. Oh, really? And so he kind of wow. brings that legacy yeah. Of, of harmony and soulful <laughs> vocals. 
And then uh, I was influenced highly by Jimi Hendrix, and, and that's what really started me playing guitar. And so I kind of bring some of that loud feedbacking <laughs> guitar playing. And we have the, the wonderful Zion Israel on keyboards, who, um, who is a jazz master, and he's bringing that element. And we have <laughs> other wonderful vocalists, uh, Isis DeMille, who's making quite a buzz around the city, is one of our vocalists. She sings at Baker's Keyboard Lounge every Tuesday. We have Simone Winter. We have Solar Liquid. So the band is, and we have a, an MC. We have, you know, we can't leave out kind of the hip-hop <laughs> element. So we have G-Mac, who performs with us also. So we would encourage people to like us on Facebook to stay uh, current on our upcoming performances, We'll be going to the studio soon and expect to have a release out sometime in early 2018. Yeah. Such a renaissance, man. Molly Wop, M-O-L-L-Y-W-O-P. <laughs> right. not, not just farming, but also music. Well, you know, we're, we're whole people. We're, <laughs> we're whole right. human beings. <laughs> That's right. And so, you know, we, in, in spite of the, the challenges that we're faced with, we want to make sure that we, also, we always have joy. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. All right. Malik Yakini, executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. It's always good to see you and talk with you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. All right. Up next, we'll talk to an author of a new book about a shocking discovery in her own family. Stay with us on Detroit Today.